Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get to our guest, old friend Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outsit Global. Andrew, thanks very much for taking out the time to be with us. So let's talk a little bit about Japan. It could be a, a very interesting time for investing in Japanese equities because one would think with this process being started by the Bank of Japan uh, that um, institutional investors and other big investors will transfer some of their bond holdings over to equity holdings. And nothing happens too fast uh, in this area in Japan. But is that something I can count on going forward over the next six to nine months? Well, I think there's that. And I also think, actually, that a lot of these Japanese companies that have been holding a lot of cash on their balance sheets suddenly become very attractive M&A targets, uh, which may be not what the uh, the government wants. But certainly, I think international investors will be looking at them very closely. Uh, and I think the other thing you have to bear in mind is now that... Uh, you know, if you go back 20 years, the Japanese used to be one of the best travelers in the world. You know, they had uh, reasonable savings, they had a good interest rate, uh, and they went and see the world. Now that they're going to start getting interest on their savings, and I think you're going to see a big change in the consumer attitudes in Japan as well. Mm. So what does this mean from an investing perspective? Where would you put money to work in Japan right now? Well, I certainly think that the, the consumer sector is going to be looking at, attractive. But also, I think, you know, you, you look at these companies, Japan is always reticent about M&A and certainly about foreign investors. But I think, uh, you know, they're going to be faced with the fact that, uh, you know, they are attractive targets. You know, they, these, are, these are companies that have been given free money for so many years. Um, they've, they've diversified themselves. They do their, their, their uh, construction, their manufacturing out of Japan. They haven't been particularly hit by the moves in the yen uh, exchange rate because they've already offset that. Um, and I think that, that you will, we'll see a lot of the, certainly the, uh, the private equity money looking, uh, looking at them very attractively. We've seen a big move in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng Index has come up from about 14,008 to 19,679. So a lot of that is looking at the reopening in China, and perhaps it's looking out to uh, the Fed uh, getting towards the top of uh, the interest rate move. I'm not quite sure, but is that move already, is is a lot already in the price, or do you think there's more momentum uh, in Hong Kong? It, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, we, we keep pushing up against the 20,000 limit and, and not managing to break out. 
Uh, I think there's still a lot of concerns. Certainly, interest rates rising um, for the first time in, in, in so many years is going to put a lot of the property sector under pressure. And historically, that's something that's been a real driver for Hong Kong. We've still got a lot of problems in China. I don't think the uh, the recovery is going to be a, a linear change, um, as, as we were saying at the top of the hour. I mean, the, the fact is that China will underrepresent the numbers. We won't have a full picture of what's going on. But I think the fact that the uh, the property sector in China is under such pressure, and, and remember, you know, we still do not have an exit strategy for Evergrande. We've been waiting for that, and without confidence in the property sector, I think China may well, you know, it, it, it'll um, it'll have trouble actually uh, moving forward. And the other thing, from international investors' point of view, the fact that policy changes so quickly in China scares them. I mean, they like the fact that uh, you know in the West. Uh, you know, if you're going to change policy, it probably get consultation, six to nine months of talks, and then a change. In China, it can change overnight, and a lot of people have been hurt by that, and I think that's going to be a problem. In terms of the property sector, the PBOC keeps on pledging its intention to support this. So does that give you a degree of certainty, or do you remain concerned that, you know, that there's a few more cockroaches under the fridge, uh, to, to coin a phrase, and uh, 2023 might be no better? My real concern there is that it's, it was probably one of the first statements they were, which they were going to encourage M&A. So that basically tells you that the government is not going to put any money in. They want the strong property companies to, to bail out the weak ones. And realistically, that just means that everything becomes worse. Because the good companies that have done well have to take over these things. And remember, a lot of this problem comes from the fact that they were using pre-sale monies you know, to fund land purchases. Um, that that in itself means that there is no cash there. So anybody buying a, a failing property company in, in China has got to take on and, and commit cash to it because the government's not. The other really big problem, I think, is the fact that local authorities rely on land sales for a lot of the uh, the income yeah. to, to fund their projects. Mm-hmm. So if the property companies are bailing each other out, they won't have enough money to do the land sales, and that's going to put the local authorities under a lot of pressure. So realistically, what we need to see is, is China change its tax system to be able to better support you know, the, the, the distribution of money. Yeah. Well, if foreign companies leave China, uh, is India the, the main beneficiary? I think India, you know, it, it has its own problems, but certainly at the moment it's it's making a big drive to attract companies. I mean, you have to remember, I mean, over the last two or three years since since Trump started tariffs, you know, companies have been looking to move out of China and and re you know, reorganize their supply lines, and a lot of those companies have gone to Indonesia, to to Vietnam, and and, and maybe Cambodia, these sort of countries. But those countries, you know, Trump started this on the base of balance of payments. You know, Vietnam's balance of payments with the U.S. now is in the same scenario that China was when Trump started. So I think India benefits from that. But you've still got in India, you know, the it, it, it's, it's got a lot of advantages. It's English speaking. It's attractive. It's got a very young population. It's, it's effectively where China was probably 15, 20 years ago. But you still have a lot of, um, you know, corruption there. You've still got the, the party politics are very disruptive. Um, so it has problems, but it has certainly got good opportunities. And when you think about opportunities in India, are commodities a way to play that? 
I think probably one of the best markets to play commodities in, in, in Asia at the moment is still Indonesia. And, and again, Indonesia is looking to try and attract more on onshore investment. So, you know, it's banning, you know, the, the export of raw materials in order to try and get companies to invest there. India itself does not have that much as far as, you know, net raw materials. What it does have, though, is a very um, young population that's well-educated, reasonably well-educated, uh, and English-speaking, and that makes it very attractive for companies setting up there. The problem you have, and I think this is a problem that they are addressing and, and overcoming, is you know, the, uh, the local corruption is so difficult. Okay, so we've gotten through this far and haven't even talked about the Fed yet. Uh, so I'll, I'll ask you a question about the Fed and try to tie it to uh, a geopolitical con uh, conflict and see what your thoughts are. Uh, what do you think ends first, the war in Ukraine or the Fed's rate hiking cycle? That's a very good question. I, and I honestly don't know which one will end first. I mean, Putin is not going to give up. Uh, and the Fed is not going to give up apart, you know, from its mandate of trying to address inflation. I, I think reasonably, though, you know, the, the Fed is it's certainly talking in aggressive talk. Uh, and it has a dual mandate, which makes it very difficult. Um, Putin, I, mean, I, I did read an article yesterday that mentioned the fact that the, uh, the Russians were firing uh, ammunition shells that were probably older than the people that were firing them which again is a cause for concern. Um, the trouble is that it, it's all about face for both. You know, the Fed can't, can't change its motives. You know, it, it's found that inflation is there. I think realistically, the whole of the investment market is, has got to go back to, to where we were 20 years ago, 20 years ago. The more worrying thing for me, though, is the fact that, you know, since we introduced QE to, to bail out, nobody has addressed unwinding QE. And, and the Fed has been very happy and the U.S. has been very happy to buy bonds and keep it keep the bond market very uh, in control. But as interest rates rise, that is going to increasingly become a cost. And that yeah. will be very, very difficult to address. OK, well, let's say we get the end of the Ukraine war and uh, the Fed peaking in interest rates. Uh, is that a massive buy signal? Well, Brian, I mean, at the end of the day, there's always buying opportunities in every scenario. It's it's just the companies. I think the more interesting thing will be, you know, we have talked for years about the zombie companies. As interest rates rise, something will have to be addressed there, and we're going to see yeah. bad companies go out and better companies survive. we got to save that for another session. That's a whole new line of thinking, Andrew, uh, but a good one. Thanks for joining us. Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Capital. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.